Coming up on The Mark Divine Show. We also know that a diverse workforce is more productive and also more creative. So far, we have been thinking about diversity in terms of ethnicity, in terms of gender, in terms of uh, national background, those sorts of things. I think it's about time that we also define diversity in terms of age. Hi, I'm Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your support. I love talking to folks from all walks of life, really interesting people that bring great value to me as well as you as a listener. And one of them is my guest today, Mauro Gillian, who's a best-selling author and vice dean at the Warden Business School. Mauro's forthcoming book is The Perennials, The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society. I'm looking forward to talking to him about that. He's one of the more original thinkers at Warden. He's an expert in global market trends. He's a highly sought-after speaker and consultant. And his online courses and Coursera have attracted over 100,000 participants. He's won multiple teaching awards there at Morton. And his presentation on global market trends has become a permanent feature of over 50 other executive education programs. He's also the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. Super stoked to have you on the Mark Devine Show, Maura. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited. I'm passionate about the intersection of leadership and also what you would call futurism. It's probably one of my like sweet spots, even though I'm not an expert on future technology and the work you're doing is pretty cool. Just for a quick background, like I am getting my PhD in global leadership and change. And I'm a Navy SEAL. So I'm fascinated with how people shape their reality distortion field, to use a Steve Jobs quote, that to become interested in this intersection of technology and demography and this field that you've created out of thin air. I think everything in the world depends on human beings. We own our futures. So that's why I take demography so seriously. I think the numbers of people, how they're distributed, especially by age, has a major impact on pretty much everything, politics, the economy, business, culture, everything. And so I decided maybe 10 years ago or so to focus a lot of my attention on the intersection among three things, really, the economy, technology, and demographics. I think that's a great intersection of those three things. That's a great window into the future. So technology is a hard science. Economics is a soft science. And demography is in between. Is that considered a social science or a hard science? It is a social science. I think economists uh, would disagree with you. They think that their science, their field has become very mathematical and very rigorous. Except none of the models work. But it is, yeah. The problem is that, and they're trying to, you know, make up for that, but the problem is that human beings don't necessarily conform to a model and that we all have psychological biases and all sorts of things. But demography is the same kind of thing. I mean, it's based on data, it's based on modeling. But again, sometimes demographers scratch their heads not understanding why is it that something unexpected happened. I think the latest example was what happened with the number of babies being born during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And people were wrong, right? That's right. In the 70s, what was the name of the book that got everyone terrified? The Population Bomb. Population Bomb, right? So the demographers thought that we were just going to be completely overwhelming the planet by 2000 or something like that. Yeah, 1968, I think it was. How did they get it so wrong? They got it wrong because I think, you know, has always been the mistake that Thomas Malthus was the first one to make that mistake, that demographers think, oh, population is growing exponentially, but they don't realize that technology in particular can also change the way in which we produce things and how much we produce and so on and so forth. However, I would say that uh, the jury is still out on that one, Mark, because now we have climate change. 
And clearly, we would have less energy consumption if we had fewer people on the planet. So I think we need to um, keep an eye on this thing, whether the population bomb was an exaggeration or not, now in the context of global warming. So much to talk about when it comes to demographics. Even the presidential election, the the whole debate now about whether we should be having two uh, candidates, both of whom are either approaching 80 or above the age of 80. Right. That's another demographic variable, right? And there's this huge debate that's out there. Now, let's stay with this theme of global population. Why is it that developed countries tend to depopulate or tend to have their population growth slow and decline and then eventually dip below that replacement number of two point whatever children? That's a great question. And uh, it's a puzzle, right? Because, hey, if people have more money, maybe they should have more children because they can afford to have more children, given that children right. are expensive, you have to pay for the education and so on and so forth. But the problem is that countries get rich. And as a result of that, you have people moving from the small village to the city. And then things change, right? Because you no longer have a family farm for which you need family labor. You're in the city. Maybe your apartment is not that big. And therefore, you cannot have five children. You can only have one or two. But more importantly, countries get developed because they manage somehow to put the other half of the uh, population, women, who in the past were not active, were not actually producing things outside of the household, they get them to work. And that's how you double GDP, essentially, right? I mean, if you start from a position in which you have no women working outside of the household, but then you have, like today, a very sizable percentage working outside of the household, you're essentially doubling GDP, right? You're also domestic product by doing that. And it is that women have had access to greater educational opportunities. They now have careers, so they postpone having their first child. So, Mark, that is the critical thing. In the past, they would have their first child at age 18 or 19 or 20 on average. But now it's more like 28, 29, 30 years old when they have their first child on average. And if that's the case, obviously they have one child, maybe two at most. They don't have five or six. And obviously we have the role of government in the case of China in an overt sense saying you could only have one child. And they recently changed that. And it's, again, human behavior doesn't always just change with a flip of the switch. Oh, no, absolutely not. There's not a single demographer in China who says that now that the government has removed all of the restrictions, that now the birth rate in China is going to go up. Because you try to tell those women in Shanghai who have a university degree and they want to work. Right. They don't want to have five children just because the government tells them that now they have to have more children. And they're going to continue having, on average, maybe only one. The interesting thing, Mark, is that we always talk about the Chinese one-child policy, which was introduced in 1979. And it lasted until seven years ago. And first they put in place a two-year, two-child policy, and then a three-child policy. And as of a year ago, they removed all of the limitations. Mm. But I would strongly argue that in the United States, we've also had a one-child policy. And the one-child policy was college for women. Yes. Because if you consider women in the United States who have a college degree, the average number of babies that they have over their lifetime is exactly one. Interesting. I was reading just the other day something called the Kissinger Report, where it's talking about the fear of population explosion and actually government getting involved and maybe just through kind of promotion of a certain way of life and policies that we're going to encourage fewer family members or fewer or lower birth rate. Yeah. So it, it actually happened in our country as well, I'm asking. Oh, no, absolutely. And but we have to uh, think about the following. This is no longer the case, but back in the 1960s, early 70s, the population of the world was growing by one additional billion people every 25 to 30 years. Right. Had that trend continued, I think we would be having a very different conversation today. But again, because of women getting an education and working 
outside of the household, and that number has been coming down in the United States ever since, the 1970s, and after the United States in most countries around the world. Even in Africa, the number is coming down, but from a very high level, right? And they're still far outpacing the Western world in terms of population growth. But the number is falling down. So let's draw a big picture for anyone who is listening and maybe hasn't been tracking, but from my understanding, the demographics of China and Russia are almost devastating in terms of where they're going to be demographically in the next yep. 50 years. Africa's ascendant, and then, you know, the Americas are largely neutral, probably because of immigration, if we could get our immigration mm-hmm. laws Correct. right away. Am I somewhere on target? Absolutely on target. So we have at one end of the spectrum, we have Japan, China, Russia. Eastern Europe is also very low birth rate. Then as you get into Western Europe, there's some countries like Sweden or like the UK that actually approximate the US, which is somewhere, as you said, neutral in the middle, right? And then on the other end, we have Africa, we have some parts of Latin America, and we still have some parts of South Asia, but not India, right? Because in India, they're approaching two children per woman. Okay. It's hard for me. When I was growing up, Indian families on average would have six or seven children. But today they're approaching two, which is a replacement, right? It's incredible. That is incredible. And linking these demographic broad trends that are happening in the next 30 to 50 years to economics, what does that mean for these countries and for us in America? All sorts of things. So think about, for example, the fact that we have a number of people retiring each year and we have a number of people entering the labor force, young people. That number of young people is shrinking right? From one year to the next, because there's fewer babies being born. Mm -hmm. So in other words, I think this is going to trigger a lot of competition among companies because they're going to see all of these people retiring, but at the same time, fewer people, young people entering the labor force. So there's going to be more competition there. Now, of course, we should also think about that technology, how robotics and AI may affect the demand for labor, right? But the other big thing that I think is really worth uh, thinking about is that this also has an impact on savings, has an impact on how many people enter educational institutions, right? A lot of uh, colleges and universities, as you know, are going out of business for lack of students, right? So the repercussions are just everywhere to be seen. I mean, it affects pretty much everything. It affects politics big time because now people above a certain age can outvote younger people for the first time, right? And they have different interests, right? And different priorities. I read a book recently. I was trying to remember the author. It might come to me as like Zehan or something. He's a geopolitical guy. It made a lot of sense and said, because the baby boomers have basically turned the corner and we're now sucking money out of the global system, like money that went to places that it never would have gone to if we didn't have this excess capital just flooding the world. And so now you have all this money being sucked out because baby boomers, instead of putting more money into their 401ks and their retirement plans, are sucking it out, right? And so this is going to start taking all the capital that flowed to some of these, like uh, the global south and some of these regions start sucking it away and to begin to accelerate the deglobalization and the polarization or this multipolar, minilateral world that we're in. And he actually makes the case that America is pretty well situated, both economically, demographically, and geopolitically to be the center of the global universe for the next few hundred years, which is pretty interesting. What What are your thoughts on all that? I think the U.S. certainly has uh, a lot of advantages. We have a a very flexible economy, which responds very well to moments of crisis. We continue to have, at least for the time being, a legal system that works. Unlike uh, many of... For the time uh, being, that's right. Yeah, that attracts investors and that attracts uh, interest and all of that. And of course, the U.S. continues to have a commanding lead in terms of technology. But you know, if you ask yourself, where was the U.K., let's say, about 120 years ago? It was roughly the same kind of situation. It was like very prosperous. It was dominant in the world. 
And, you know, within 30 or 40 years, that was all gone. So you really have to pay attention to what's going on, right? And not make any assumptions that anything is going to last forever, right? This is true. And I think one of the things that really ends up changing things very quickly, as you know very well, is technology. Mm -hmm. So we have this acceleration or exponential technology explosion, and it seems like it's speeding up, which it might be because of you know, Moore's law, the pace of you know, technological innovation and adoption is just becoming unbelievable. Yeah. Can you talk just to help listeners really understand kind of where we're at in this inflection curve? It seems to me like everyone's starting to feel it, but we're still at the very beginning of this exponential curve of yeah. innovation and new technology, stuff that, you know, maybe took a good 20 years for it to be adopted by a good percentage of that. And now we're seeing it happen much faster and faster. So what does the next 10 years look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me answer it directly. But first, I want to make a point that I think is important in order to context my answer, which is that there's some people who say that what we're going through is not unprecedented. Their argument is that if you go back to the last few years of the 19th century, we had the telephone being invented, the telegram, movie making, we had chemicals, we had all of these revolutions, right, that really changed people's lives. And now, of course, we have the internet, we have the genome, we have robotics, we have AI and so on and so forth. But I don't agree with this school of thought because I think what's going on now are technologies that have a huge impact on pretty much everything, right? So you can say, oh, social media has changed marketing, but it hasn't only been marketing, it has changed politics. Right. It has changed the way in which we consume news. It's changed culture. Exactly. So in other words, I think the changes that we're seeing today are essentially affecting every aspect of our lives and every aspect of our societies, unlike those changes from 120 years ago. So in the next 10 years, I think there's going to be a massive convergence of robotics and AI, which hasn't happened yet. AI will continue to be to develop, of course, but then robotics, I think, are going to be joining with AI. I think this is going to have a big impact on a number of things, including manufacturing and other aspects of the economy, but also armies and how wars are fought in the world, right? All of that is, is likely to start changing. It has already changed, I think, to a very large extent with drones, but it's going to go other steps further before we know it. And then there's the human genome, and there's this potential for individualized therapies for everybody and how that's going to change the disease landscape out there. But then the other thing that I would like to tell your listeners is that we shouldn't be triumphalist about technology, right? Because we tend to think that technology is just going to make everything better and so on. It has made one thing worse, at least one thing, and we saw that with the pandemic, with the uh, coronavirus, which is that all of this interconnectivity essentially has meant that a virus, if it's stubborn enough, can actually make the entire world very unhappy, miserable, right? Those two years or so that we have to live through. Right. So sometimes technology helps, sometimes technology creates a lot of problems. Plus, we have the other issue, which is how many people are going to lose their jobs mm -hmm. in robotics, in AI, and so on. I think that's also a very important question to be asking ourselves. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show kind of speaks to your work in your new book, uh, Perennials. I'd like to double click on just AI. There's so much disparity of thought on what AI actually will be like in the future and whether it'll be benevolent or some overlord or what do you think the risks are? And we all can surmise what the benefits would be, but. Well, so I think about benefits, for example, these days, AI can be used to read x-rays or to read MRIs, and it tends to do a much better job than doctors looking at them. Right. 
in any event, there can be just a check on that. It helps make our cars, even if they're not uh, driverless, it makes them safer, right? Because there's also a lot of these AI things now that a car, you know, if you're about to hit an object, it starts... Yeah, it could uh, almost eliminate human error, right? If you look at the, the medical profession, like you said, 750,000 people literally killed by the medical industry itself every year. That's like the third leading cause of death. Absolutely. And I think AI will also make education much better. Right. So there are all of these benefits. There's no question about it. I think there are two basic concerns about AI. One thing is the famous singularity, that is to say that machines take over. I'm not given to science fiction. So it may happen, it may not. But as even from the beginnings of the field, like Alan Turing already alerted the world to singularity, right? The possibility of singularity. Mm -hmm. But I'm not too concerned about that. I think the biggest concern is the short-term effect on people and their careers and their jobs. Because robotics so far was essentially replacing physical or manual labor with machines. Right. But now AI essentially threatens the cognitive occupations, like what I do as a professor and as a researcher. You know, it may well be that podcasters are also uh, replaced by AI. Maybe out of the job very soon as well. <laughs> we could all be out of a job. We might be. The ones who fought against universal basic income would be like, hey, we need a UBI. <laughs> exactly. So I think that is the more immediate concern. And it's also the concern, I think, about how AI may make some companies extremely powerful, right? Right. The ones who succeed at developing the right type of AI that then gets adopted in the world. We have in this IT sector this tendency for the winner-take-all kind of dynamic, right? right. That dynamic. right. Winner or winners, but in that case, very few companies, like three or four companies, essentially making big bucks. Far surpassing, except in the case of like China, which has corporatized the state. It's the global corporations that seem like they're far more powerful these days than a country or a nation state. It used to be the center of power. Absolutely right. So we are living through interesting times, let's put it that way. Yeah, for sure. That's fascinating. Now, you mentioned the genome and like personalized healthcare as it relates to both prevention as well as also longevity. What are your views on lifespan and health span? Yeah, I think the biggest potential would be, as you just hinted, that we might be able to prevent disease. So, for example, you find out that you have the gene that may, you know, predispose you towards a particular illness. Right. So you can take early action. And I think we should probably all remember the very shocking case of Angelina Jolie, who found out that she had the gene and she decided then to have a double. Mastectomy. Mastectomy, exactly. Yeah. So that was brought to people's attention. This very interesting potential of the genome. But then also, if you get a disease, to try to uh, target the root cause of the disease through uh, genomic research on each individual patient. And in other words, then thinking about what the best course of action is. And, you know, when it comes to cancer, we're no longer really thinking about liver cancer or lung cancer as separate things. Now it's more like, what is the underlying genetic mutation that led to it, mm -hmm. right? Rather than thinking in terms of which organ of the body is affected. More systemic view. Absolutely. What about just reversing aging, though? Besides the hacks, I'm looking at my hyperbaric chamber, right? So a study out of Sweden says that actually can lengthen your telomeres and reverse or slow down aging, maybe both. What's your view? Because you're in Colombia and you're talking to all the pioneers. Look, I'm not an expert, obviously, in this area, but from what I know, I recount a number of stories about this in the book. The issue here is that, obviously, when you think about the problem genetically, there must be a gene that essentially causes us to age, right? And not to have cells renew themselves so that we can live forever, right? Mm. There must be a gene. And if you can identify that gene, then perhaps what you can do is turn it off somehow, and then we would live forever. Now, secondly, of course, the problem is that uh, the human body is very complex uh, because it's highly evolved. So researchers have managed to turn off 
the gene with worms, which are very simple organisms. And uh, these worms, for example, uh, when they turn the gene off, they manage to live three or four times longer. But to tell you the truth, Mark, I'd rather be a human being who passes away at some age rather than be a worm. There's another thing here. There's this obsession with living longer, which is the lifespan or life expectancy. But we haven't thought, I think, enough about the health span. So how many of those years we continue to be in good physical and mental shape so that we can enjoy life? That's right. And you know what? Over the last 30 or 40 years in the United States, life expectancy has grown slightly faster than the health span. Mm-hmm. And the United States, we are the only country in the world in that situation because every other country in the world, both things have grown at about the same rate. Okay, so the, the lifespan and the health span. My interpretation of that is that we don't have a great lifestyle here in the United States in terms of nutrition. Right. We have this big problem with obesity and other chronic diseases. That essentially means that, yes, our healthcare system is good enough to keep us alive, but not with the quality of life. I would submit that another reason for that is just the way that we treat families, right, and separate them. And so my parents, they lived in Florida. Well, my parents lived up in upstate New York. And I always wondered, like, gosh, that doesn't seem very, <laughs> you don't get that robust interaction all the time and the grandparents with the grandkids. And anyway, so these other cultures have a different way of organizing the family so that the elders are engaged and have meaning and purpose, right? And the Blue Zones all say that, right? The Blue Zone studies, like the elders are, you're working in the garden, they're being grandparents, watching the grandkids, they're having fun. Yeah, but let's not minimize the importance of psychological factors in terms of uh, life expectancy and the health span, because we all know that uh, stress kills, right? Right. It really kills a lot of people around the world, including the United States. So there's also a lot of psychological things. Happier people who smile a lot, people who joke a lot, they're known for having greater longevity, right? We also need to think about the cognitive and the psychological side of all of these things. Yeah, setting aside just the issue of like, would you even want to live for 200 years if you, you know, if you really, let's say you were just like bored to death. I think a lot of people would be like, I don't want to do that. Like my son, he was like, I have no interest in that. Personally, I do if I could continue to serve and teach and I'm finding passion in that. I'm like, okay, just keep it going a little longer. That'd be fun. Yeah. But what are the practical issues with regard to the economy and culture? If all of a sudden in 20, 30 years, everyone's living to 150 to 100. Yeah, of course. But not only that, also we would have a much greater population in the world. So much more consumption, much more energy use. Right. Even though fewer people are being born, there's a lot of people who are being born. A lot of people not dying. But if at the other end, we don't have enough people exiting the stage, right? then the earth will get crowded. There's no question about it. But on the other hand, I think all of these changes are going to be relatively gradual. So yes, I think life expectancy at some point will break the 100-year barrier, which once again, this is the average number of years the average person, let's say American, would live. So that I think it's highly likely that we will breach the 100-year barrier right. at some point in the future. You wrote a book recently called Perennials. Can you tell me about just the general theme and what got you interested and where did this emerge from? Absolutely. So all of this emerged from the idea that I think many of the problems that we are encountering right now have to do with the fact that we have been organizing our lives in the wrong way. For a hundred years or so, we have organized our lives in terms of sequential stages. So first we play when we're very little, then we study, then we work, and then we retire. Right. And I think we have reified retirement as this golden age during which we're going to have all of the fun that we didn't have when we were working. Of course, and people on average die within five years of retirement because they have no meaning and they, all the energy that propped up that third stage dissipates. Exactly right. 
And it also causes other problems. Like for women, that model doesn't work very well because of biology, right? Because they want to have children at the same time that under that model, they would need to be promoted at work and they would need to be very dedicated to their jobs. And it doesn't serve also other kinds of groups in American society that are disadvantaged, like teenage mothers or like high school dropouts. So people who essentially miss the train, they don't make the transition in life from one stage to the next at the time that it's supposed to happen. Yeah, or they step off the train and then they have a tough time getting back on it because the world seems to have moved on. Yeah, only 2% of teenage mothers in the U.S., for example, get a college degree. Wow. And we all know that a college degree still gives you better jobs and better careers and better salaries. So the point here is that the model as we have it now is not serving anybody. And now technological change and economic change is making matters worse because we see situations in which people made a bet when they were in their 20s as to what is it that they wanted to do in life. And then they realize, oh my gosh, technology has made my occupation redundant. Right. right? Not just my job. It's like my entire everything that I do. So we need more flexibility. We need to think about, hey, why don't we go back and forth between learning and working several times? If we do retire, let's... Uh, make sure that there is a, uh, a way out of that. So in other words, that you can unretire either full-time or part-time. That's also going to help, by the way, with social security deficit and so on and so forth. So again, the overall idea is that we need more flexibility. So the perennials are people who do not think or act their age. So they work, sure, but they learn at an age in which in the past we didn't have any learners, right? So they say, we see increasingly people in their 50s or 60s learning, going back to school literally or joining an online program. This didn't happen 30 or 40 years ago, I can assure you. Right. And we see people going into retirement and then unretiring. So we see all of these complexities essentially proliferating, which don't fit the old model and I think provide us with more flexibility. So I think it's a welcome trend. Yeah. Part of it is a trend, but also a part of it can be just almost teaching a whole new way of being. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This requires a new mindset. So we need to change our mindset. In other words, we're not going to have a job for life or not even an occupation for life that we may need to be all of us career switchers at some point. It's also about companies and the government. So both of them also have changed because as you know, the government and the companies, all they do is they categorize us in terms of age. And so the government then offers us different programs. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. Wasn't it FDR or his administration that came up with the concept of retirement? Yeah, originally in the world, retirement emerged in Germany in the 1880s. Okay, right. So there were two key developments at that time, right? So one was the introduction of universal schooling, which essentially meant that there was now a separation between early childhood and being a teenager. And then pension systems, which essentially meant that there was a separation between your work life and then your rest life or your retirement. So those two innovations there, which, you know, a lot of people saw as positive, essentially then got us into this compartmentalized, very rigid system of living our lives. What changes do you think government will need to make in order to move in this direction and to help people adopt this mindset? And now I'd like to talk about corporations, a lot of corporate leaders who listen to this. And I think that there probably are some strategies they should be thinking about right now. So governments, they play two roles. First is they're the biggest employer in almost any country in the world. Right. So by example, if they tell everybody else, we're going to change the way in which we think about workers. We're not going to try to get rid of a worker who is 50 years old or 60 years old. In fact, what they could do is invest in those people, which they currently don't do, right. with a view to helping them prepare for the labor market as it changes in the future. 
That's number one. Number two is all of those government programs that are targeting specific age groups. They need to be more flexible, right? So in other words, we shouldn't only give uh, money to, or loans to people who are relatively young so that they can study. We should also give it to people who are in their 40s or their 50s because they may still have ahead of them 30 years worth of active life. So those are the two ways in which governments need to change. I think it's important. You were asking about companies, right? Yeah. So two thoughts that I want to share with your listeners. The first is that companies, I think, will adjust because they're in a competitive market in terms of talent. So remember, there's more people retiring than new people coming into the labor force because of demographic changes. So companies, I think, sooner or later will realize that if they really want to be effective in terms of attracting and retaining talent, they're going to have to think very seriously about retaining people in their 50s, in their 60s, even in their 70s. And there's an increasing number of companies that are doing exactly that, right? Because they've also realized, this is the other message that I want to send to your uh, listeners who happen to be in business. We also know that a diverse workforce is more productive and also more creative. Right. So we know this from research on teams. And so far, we have been thinking about diversity in terms of ethnicity, in terms of gender, in terms of uh, national background, those sorts of things. I think it's about time that we also define diversity in terms of age. So there is research indicating that multi-generational teams at work are more productive and they're also more creative. Yeah, that's fascinating. I remember the one anecdote from, I think it was Uber, where the founder was mentored by a much older individual and attributes a lot of the success to his ability to like tame and bring a little bit of that wisdom to the table. What a great role. Talk about unretiring. All corporate executives are consider unretiring to come back and help these millennial leaders out. <laughs> the interesting thing is that, especially in the tech sector, we are seeing more and more that people report to bosses or managers who are younger than they are. Right. Which 50 years ago, that didn't happen in corporate America. You know, the boss was always older than you were, right? But not today, necessarily. That's fascinating. And when I work with my clients, I really encourage them to really do the self-awareness work. And so I think this is another thing that's really neat is like, we've really in the past double-clicked on horizontal skill development for workforce, getting the right job or preparing the technical skills to become a doctor, lawyer, or accountant or such. And what I like to focus people on is what I call vertical development. Let's focus on the skills of enhancing your capacity as a human being, to see more, to be more inclusive, to be more compassionate. I've heard different terms for the age we're heading into. I've heard fourth industrial revolution, I've heard exponential age, but also the conceptual age. The skills that are most important aren't going to be those technical skills because ChatGPT or some future AI can do those, right? What do you think leaders of all ages should be doing now to prepare to be more relevant in terms of their own development? Number one is they need to learn about all of these new technologies, but not so much in terms of how they work, but rather what are the implications of those technologies for all of the different functional areas within their organization. So we know that AI, for example, has changed finance or marketing, but how about the organization? How about the interaction of human beings and so on and so forth? So I think that's number one, that's really important. But the second is, as you were hinting, that they need to realize that technical skills are important, but increasingly AI is going to be able to handle those. Mm -hmm. But social skills, are harder to learn and they're becoming really important. So I'm talking here about your capacity to work in teams and negotiations, abilities, and also emotional intelligence, right? The ability to communicate. I think these social skills are becoming, and the data that they indicate, that they're becoming really important in the American labor market and in other labor markets around the world. And yet they're difficult to develop, as you mentioned. And this is one of my areas of passion. So I'm working on, even in my doctorate, 
is to flesh out a um, global leadership development program that really brings out some of these capacities, more compassion, more empathy, greater communication skills, because they're difficult to develop. You can develop through hardship, you can develop through therapy, you know, but there's not a lot of leadership development programs that have done a good job of really cultivating all that stuff. We're reaching critical mass time to develop those. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, sir, top three takeaways for your perennial book. Number one is that we need to change our mindset because the economy and technology are requiring us to be flexible. So we cannot continue to live our lives according to the old ways where we move from one stage to the next. We need to um, change the way we run ourselves, our lives. And let me just paraphrase in a way Roosevelt here. So we have to realize that the only possible response to change is change itself, right? In other words, if you remain static while your environment is changing, then you're going to be out of whack very quickly. The number two is something that we already touched on, which is that the book is not just for people who are already successful so that they can continue to be successful. Hmm. It's also, I think, a recipe for addressing those uh, groups of disadvantaged people that I told you about earlier. So women in general, because the old way of doing things is not necessarily the best for them, Mm -hmm. but also all of those other categories of people that I told you about, high school dropouts, teenage mothers, Uh, people who went through the foster care system, the disadvantage and the model doesn't really help them because they need more time. They need more flexibility in order Mm -hmm. to adjust, in order to uh, do well in life. I would say perhaps the third is to ask our leaders that they need to lead on this, Right. uh, that there's so much inertia. We have been following the old model for a hundred years. So I think it's about time that our leaders essentially told us, there's another way of doing these things. Let's just uh, discover that new way together. Yeah, hallelujah. I'm sure everyone would be like, boy, we sure would like to see some sane conversations coming from our leadership, at least in the political spectrum. And so we can get on with the business of change because we all know it's coming at us fast. If we can adapt and ride the wave, we'll be much better off. Absolutely. And this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you for the work you're doing and for spending your time with us here today. Where can people learn more about the book and your work? Definitely at any bookstore. It's not going to be published until August, but you can pre-order it. But more importantly, what they can do is reach out to me on LinkedIn. That is, for me, the best platform because we can exchange messages. Mm-hmm. And I regularly post updates, and so they can also get those. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it, sir. Thank you, Mark, for inviting me. This was wonderful. It's been terrific. That was a fascinating conversation. Wow, man, my head is still spinning thinking about the future of the intersection of technology and demographics and the economics and some really, really important things need to be discussed at political and corporate level about how to organize for what's coming. And people need to think with a different mindset, that perennial mindset, which doesn't get you stuck or locked into a single career technical skill, but become more fluid and conceptually oriented. So Great, great stuff, and I appreciate you, Mauro, for joining me. The show notes are up at markdevine.com, and the video will be on our YouTube channel. You can reach out to me on social media, at Mark Devine at Twitter, at RealMarkDevine on IG and Facebook, and you can always uh, find me at LinkedIn if you're a LinkedIn user. My newsletter, Divine Inspiration, comes out every Tuesday where I have show notes from the week's podcast. I have a blog. I have a book I'm reading. I have other cool stuff that comes across my desk, including a practice Go to markdevine.com to sign up and subscribe and share it with your friends, please. Thanks so much to my incredible team of Catherine Devine and Jeff Haskell and Jason Sanderson 
who help produce this podcast and bring incredible guests to you every week. Ratings and reviews are very helpful. So if you haven't done so, please consider to rate or review the show or and review the show wherever you listen. It helps build trust and uh, helps keep the ball rolling. Thanks so much also for being the change you want to see in the world. That means you show up every day, do the work, like listening to this podcast, deploying the tactics and the practices you learn, becoming unbeatable, and then sharing it forward through the way you show up. So thanks for doing your part. And together, we will co-create the world that our hearts knows is possible, push back against the negativity and violence. That's our goal here at the Mark Divine Show. So hoo-yah. Appreciate you. Till next time, Divine out.